0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of
1: Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.
0: We are live with Dr. William Lane Craig. We are going to be talking about the book of Genesis, the hermeneutical hurdles that we're going to have in the first couple of chapters here of Genesis. Uh, Before we introduce Dr. Craig, uh, Michael, how are you doing, man? you excited? Uh, I'm excited,
2: man. I'm super excited about Dr. Craig. read his books, watched his... uh,
0: Interviews, podcasts, everything, Debates. so just yeah. super excited. I'm stoked. Uh, Dr. Craig, uh, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the topic, so people who can familiarize themselves with you before we, we jump into the, the nitty-gritties of Genesis.
1: Sure. Great to be with you this morning. I'm a visiting scholar in philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. I'm also the founder and current president of a nonprofit web-based ministry called Reasonable Faith, um, and very interested in the topics that you want to talk about this morning.
0: Now, now we're thrilled uh, to have you on the show. We're talking about Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, now, you've done a bit of work uh, on lots of various subjects. I've read On Guard. I know that you're working on some, some books right now on atonement theory. Can you tell us a little about some of the, the works that you're, you're working on right now?
1: Well, currently, I am studying the question of the historical Adam with uh, the attempt to answer the question, is belief in a historical Adam and Eve compatible with the findings of modern science? So for the last two years, I have devoted myself exclusively and full-time to that question. Excellent. Um,
2: That is a question we're going to want to dive into. Before we dive into to any questions, Dr. Craig, uh, we'd like to just uh, give you a moment. We want, we want to ask, are you writing any books right now uh, that we could be expecting? Are there any uh, conferences, events? I mean, obviously, there's coronavirus and craziness going on right now. But right. anything, any ways that we can connect with you uh, through book or anything that you're producing?
1: Uh, well, in July... Uh, This summer, Baylor University Press is releasing my most recent book, which is called Atonement and the Death of Christ, and it is a scholarly discussion of the biblical doctrine of the atonement um, biblically, church historically, and philosophically, and so I'm really looking forward to the release of that book.
0: Yeah, that sounds wow. great. Yeah, looking forward to that as well. Uh, okay, let's let's dive into Genesis. Uh, I think you had a question actually at the very very beginning of Genesis. And that's probably the okay. best place to start.
2: Yeah. So if we want to go to the very very beginning of Genesis, so in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The big famous Genesis one one, followed by this watery chaos and the, uh, uh, you know, the earth was formless, without was formless uh, void. and void. And so there's a lot of theories. There are a lot of theories between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2 and how these relate to one another. Really, three primary theories. Uh, one being, and I'm not saying this to teach you, Dr. Craig. I'm <laughs> I know that you know this. I'm, I'm just kind of introducing the subject because I want to understand where you stand on how Genesis 1 1 and 1 2 relate to one another. Yes. Um, and so well, one could I, is.
1: Could go I ahead. immediately issue what I think is a necessary correction, please, and that is that verse two does not describe a chaotic state. This is a complete misunderstanding of the text. When the text says that the earth is without form and void, what that means is that the earth is an uninhabitable waste. The same expression, tohu, wabohu, is used to describe the desolated land ravaged by war. It's uh, a state of desolation and uh, inhospitable to life. It is not the Greek idea of a chaos. Quite the contrary. The way the uh, primordial ocean is described is that it has a surface uh, above which the Spirit of God is hovering, below it is the, dry, uh, the land that will eventually emerge and be the dry land, it is ordinary water that will eventually fill the streams and oceans and lakes and will fall from the sky as rain, and as such has the usual properties associated with water such as liquidity, a certain specific density, uh, a certain surface tension, uh, and so on and so forth that ancient Israelites would have been familiar with. So this is anything but a chaos. It is a highly ordered state. It is a dark uh, ocean of water. I think that if an Israelite reading this passage were to imagine it in his mind, it would be what an Israeli sailor would experience on a moonless night, uh, overcast out on the Mediterranean sea, a dark ocean of water uh, that um, is the... Is, precedes the emergence of the dry land and God's creation of life.
0: So, so to to the clarifying of that, you know, I've I've heard people say that a lot of the the, the water language is in fact just that chaos language. I uh, like and that's in, in the incorrect. Book of Job. That's incorrect. So, like, like in the Book of Revelation, where where he says, oh. like, there's going to be no sea, there's going to be no water. Like, the, the beast comes out of the the sea. That these kinds of this is imagery of chaos language, well, let, and not necessarily Genesis, but like, forward. yeah. Let's
1: not draw in these okay. other books of the Bible. Uh, that would be bad hermeneutics to impose things like okay. the Book of Revelation, written hundreds of years later by another right, other, right, right. other context upon the interpretation of Genesis. We need to understand Genesis um, within the context of the Pentateuch and against the background of ancient Near Eastern thought, for example, the myths of Mesopotamia and Egypt. And Mm -hmm. many, many scholars have misunderstood Genesis 1-2 to be a reflection of a kind of primordial chaos associated, for example, with Egyptian myths, when in Mm -hmm. fact... It is utterly distinct from those myths in this regard, and as I say, describes an ordinary ocean filled with ordinary water that would eventually be in our lakes and oceans and and rivers and fall from the sky.
2: Okay. So then I think that partly answers one of the questions I was going to ask, which was, do you believe in a pre-creation chaos theory, the idea that Genesis 1-2 actually chronologically precedes Genesis one one, where Genesis one one describes sort of God ordering the universe, but then Genesis one two describes the state of chaos that preceded that. What I'm hearing
1: is no, you don't believe that that's, theory. You're right. I think that's quite a mistake. Further confirmation of my claim would be the fact that the flood returns the earth to its primordial condition. Um mm-hmm. And the flood is clearly not a chaos in the Greek right. sense. It has a surface. There are There's a boat, an ark, floating on top of it. It's covering the mountains. Uh, there are clouds above that give rain, birds flying in the air. The, the return of the earth to its primordial condition in the flood is definitely not a return to some kind of chaos.
2: Right. Okay, so... Uh, Now, I know that you believe in an old earth, not a not a earth that's, you know, six or ten thousand years old. Right. That. Yes. It is like the scientists say um, millions and, you know, universe billions of years old. Yes, And so how do how do you fit that into the Genesis account?
1: Wow. Well, I mean, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Here, I think, Michael, there are two distinct questions that must be treated independently and separately. The first is the hermeneutical question. Mm -hmm. What does Genesis 1 teach? The second is the scientific question. Having arrived at our interpretation of Genesis, is this compatible with the deliverances of modern science? And those are two quite distinct questions, and we mustn't allow modern science to guide our interpretation of Genesis 1. We need to adopt a hermeneutical approach to this chapter and the following chapters that reads them in the original context in which their author and audience would have understood them, and not try to impose or read modern science into them. So your question is is a bit premature. But, uh, well, we can unfold that perhaps as we but, talk. Well, let yeah, let's, let's,
0: or... let's do that Let's do the the Genesis, the, the hermeneutic. Let's tackle the hermeneutic of it, uh, and then we'll talk about some science, and we'll see how those things fold up uh, towards the end. I, I like the the trajectory of the way that, that question was Good. framed. Let Let's talk about the, the hermeneutical style of the book of Genesis. There seems to be some some pretty difficult things as far as my reading of Genesis uh, that don't seem to, to, to line up. Uh, they don't make a whole lot of sense if I take a literal reading. Uh, for yes. example, it seems as if the sun was created on day four, yeah. but a day is as the earth revolves around the sun, right? So, or a, a day. The, the earth doesn't revolve around the sun in a day. The, the earth's rotation around the sun. So how does how does the earth's rotation of, of a day work when the sun wasn't created yet? Uh, how, how does... Um, Uh, In Genesis, uh, it it seems as if uh, in chapter 1, God creates all of the beasts and then creates man, but then in Genesis 2, Man's in the garden, and then he creates these beasts. And then uh, Genesis 2 says there's no, like, herbs or or, uh, plants of the field. There's no vegetation. But then in Genesis 1, he says he created all the vegetation. So so how does this stuff work? How are we supposed to approach the hermeneutics of Genesis? Is it absolutely literal, or is there some more kind of poetic, Poetic, prophetic sort of language taking place?
1: I think you are absolutely correct in noticing those problems and thinking that— those ought to be clues to us that this is a type of literature that is not meant to be read as a literal historical account. I think that when we compare uh, Genesis 1 to 11, the so-called primeval history, um, with the literature of the ancient Near East, what we discover is that Genesis 1 to 11 exhibits Many of the traits that are characteristic of what folklorists call myth. Mm-hmm. Now, in modern terminology, the word myth can be very misleading. I saw something on Amazon the other day about uh, the myth of uh, some modern thing or some, it, it, to mean a falsehood. And that's not what folklorists mean by myth. Rather, a myth is a sacred, traditional narrative, which establishes the foundations and identity of the culture which embraces it in primordial events of the distant past. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at Genesis 1-11 to in this light, that it is very plausible to say that this literature belongs to the genre of myth in the folklorist's sense. There's an important caveat, however. The primeval narratives of Genesis 1-11 to are not just unordered narratives. They are ordered by a series of genealogies that are like the backbone of the primeval narratives and turn it into a primeval history. And these genealogies terminate in chapter 12 in what are indisputably intended to be historical people, like Abraham. And there's no indication that the earlier members of the genealogy are meant to be unhistorical or symbolic. So this isn't pure myth, rather I think that the genre classification that makes the most sense is what the famous Assyriologist Tor Kilt Jakobsen called mythohistory. That is to say, it is intended to describe historical persons and events that actually took place but these events are cloaked with the language of mythology and metaphor and therefore should not be pressed for literal accuracy now if that's the case then it is a huge misreading of genesis 1 to 11 including the narratives of adam and eve to interpret them as A literal historical account and the problems that you just mentioned would be tips as well tip-offs that we aren't dealing here with a literal historical account and that's why the author is unbothered by these okay i'm gonna give two
0: examples here to just kind of dice up what you said in a totally uh, uh, fourth grade level here, okay? okay. Star Wars, complete myth, <laughs> okay? Uh, yeah. Remember the well, Titans, no, no, based before. on a true story, okay. but with the, the truisms, the truth pieces are still present. Based on a true story, racism, bad loving your neighbor good, uh, and you can see truisms present based on a true story, but there is other kind of storytelling pieces that are running alongside that that's not 100% factual. Would, yeah. would that be kind of the, the representation that you're giving? Again, no, fourth no, grade I, level. No, I, I want to <laughs> be careful here.
1: Yeah. For a folklorist, okay. a death is a traditional sacred narrative. Star okay. Wars is fiction Yes. It was written just a few years ago. Exactly. So don't yeah. equate myth with fiction. What okay. you would need would be, oh, say, ancient Greco- Gilgamesh Roman or something. Myths. Yes, although even there, Gilgamesh may have some historical elements. It may well sure. be that there was a king named Gilgamesh, an ancient Sumer. So even there, there may be some historical traces but certainly there are plenty of examples that folklorists talk about that are pure myth that have no historical basis whatsoever. But let's not confuse myth in the proper sense with things like Superman, Star Wars, and other Excellent. fictions. Okay, so Nobody's so saying that Genesis is fiction. Well, right. I'm not
0: when I say nobody. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no one, None of the no. three of us are saying Yeah, no. yeah yes. Praise God. Okay, we're on the same page there. Okay, so now
2: talk about the way, uh, please, that this hermeneutic affects, uh, affects your understanding of the way Genesis 1 actually plays out. And, and kind of leading ultimately toward that scientific question of uh, how old is the earth? Uh, could you kind of take us from the hermeneutic to the scientific? Or if there's a step in between, take us to that step?
1: What it implies is, for example, that when Genesis 3 says that God was walking in the cool of the garden, and Adam and Eve hear the sound of God rustling in the leaves, (laughs) that that shouldn't be taken literally. We are not to imagine God as an anthropomorphic humanoid deity walking in the Garden of Eden. Or creating Adam out of the dust and doing CPR by blowing into his nose. Uh, this is part of the mythological language. And I think we know that because in Genesis 1, verse 1, God is described as the transcendent creator of all physical reality. He is not a humanoid deity made out of matter that exists within the universe. He is the transcendent creator of the universe. And so these anthropomorphic descriptions of God shouldn't be taken literally. These are very typical mythological portrayals of God in human form.
0: So, so what about those people who would push back and say, hey, there seems to be Christophanies uh, or or theophanies throughout the Old Testament, uh, couldn't this just be one of those of— Like a Genesis 32 wrestling with God kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah. one of the many, absolutely.
1: One could say that, though when you read the stories of these theophanies, such as the appearance of God to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, there are typically tip-offs that this is— a theophany. It will say, then God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, or something like that, and there isn't any language of that sort in Genesis 2 and 3 that would suggest that we're dealing here with some kind of a theophany. It seems more plausible that this is just anthropomorphic language.
0: Now, are are help me on your assertion here, like because I, I know I, I love listening to you because you say it's very plausible that it's this, it's very plausible that it's that. Right. Uh, this is what I hold as far as for sure embodiment, like it, for sure anthropomorphic language, just saying uh, the author is using this kind of language to make a point versus actually embodied meant. Uh, Is this a kind of an open-handed issue for you, or or do you say, I'm pretty confident, I'm pretty uh, assured that this is anthropomorphic language and not an actual embodiment?
1: All of these questions, Josh, are controversial and open to interpretation. I am sharing here what I find most plausible uh, and I would be prepared to argue for that. It's not just opinion. As I say, I think there are reasons to think these aren't theophanies embodying a literal incarnation of God. Um, but it's not an open and shut case. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, so would you say that like,
2: because of the way Genesis was written, it wasn't even really intended to answer the question of how old the earth is?
1: That's correct. Okay. And you know, it's interesting in that regard, Michael, one of the interesting features about the genealogies is that even though it gives the ages of all of the people when they were born, when they died, the author never totals them up to say, thus it was 1,670 years from blank to blank. Uh, There's no attempt in Genesis to record the age of the earth or how long it was from Adam to the flood these the, the figures are never totaled and that is a, a telling silence i think
0: Do, would you would you hold to the, the i guess uh, the position that the genealogy is more about tracking the seed of the woman than it is uh, about the righteous seed of the woman than it is in fact a historical genealogy trying to to give explanation for how many nations are on the earth and why they're there uh, and how they became depraved
1: i don't see that it's necessarily about tracking the seed of the woman. I'd be open to hearing the arguments for that. It seems to me that it is presented as a list of the ancestors leading up to Abraham. But as I say, it is in this mythological genre that shouldn't be taken literally so that you could, for example, add up the ages of the people in the genealogy and compute the date of creation.
2: Mm hmm. OK. Uh, could we could we visit maybe uh, come back to the idea? You've mentioned the word mythology, mythological and, and some of these other mm-hmm. the Babylonian creation myths. Uh, there's Egyptian, uh, the Canaanite creation myths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that in the 20th century, some people came in and say, hey, the Hebrews just borrowed from these other creation myths and then kind of made up their own version which was a synthesis of all of those others, but it made Yahweh come out on top with you know his foot on their neck, and so the Hebrews just made this up. Hmm. Um, what would what would you say to that? Uh, that objection.
1: I would say that that is not the consensus of scholarship today. Shortly after George Smith uh, discovered the cuneiform text of the Epic of Gilgamesh around 1872, there was for several decades a period that has been described as pan-Babylonianism, where these Babylonian myths were taken to explain everything. Uh, The Old Testament, even Greco-Roman mythology was interpreted as being an expression of Babylonian mythology. And that over-enthusiasm on the part of scholars was soon tempered, and it is, I think, safe to say today that most scholars would see very little borrowing from the author of Genesis from the myths of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia.
0: Okay, so we're we're talking about like we have got this this myth piece. We've got this. Um, you know, we're we're looking at the the allegories in which the author is using to make uh, make points. So. It, you even said it yourself that, that maybe even the genealogies don't give us a linear timeline. So how how do you work the old earth creation piece into that? We, we have some science data that says the earth is really, really old. Yes. Uh, and then we've got uh, some other data as, as far as the book of Genesis that says this might be allegorical. So how do we, how do we begin to mesh those two pieces yeah. together? Did well, Genesis be, happen?
1: Go ahead. I, I want to be careful again here, Josh. It's yeah. not allegory it would be myth. And myth, those, yes, again, sir. are different literary categories. We just need to be really careful here sure, about our literary categories. So you're now switching over to the scientific question. I would say the answer to the hermeneutical question is that we're dealing here with mytho-history that doesn't tell us how old the earth is. So we turn to modern science, to astrophysics, and geology, and so forth, to discover how old the Earth is, uh, and the universe, and we find that the Earth is probably uh, billions of years old, and the universe came into being around uh, 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang, and so I think those are the dates that um, are given to us by modern science, and that I accept.
2: Okay, so um, how do you decide between if it's kind of this mytho history? Mm-hmm. I can imagine somebody coming from a young Earth perspective saying, "Well, then it then it feels like you get to pick and choose which part is myth and which part is history." And yes. then you might push too far and say, "Well, Adam and Eve aren't real; the fall isn't mm-hmm. real; um, original sin goes down original, the drain." Right? Yeah. Original sin goes down the drain, and so. Uh, In answering that question, I think this does come back to the hermeneutic of how do we decide between which part is understood to be mythical and which part is understood to be historical?
1: That's, again, a really difficult question to answer. But I think minimally what we want to say is that based upon the genealogical ordering of these narratives, that it is intended to be about historical persons who really did these various things, and then I would say this is confirmed by the teaching of the New Testament, where Paul's disquisitions on Adam in Romans chapter 5, I think, burst the bounds of what has been called a literary Adam, that is to say that the character in Genesis mm-hmm. 2 and 3, and impinges upon the real historical Adam through whom sin came into the race and affected the human race, and which was then ultimately rectified by Christ. So minimally, I think, we're committed to the historicity of this primordial couple who are at the headwaters of the human race and through whom sin came into the world.
2: Okay. So it sounds like there's part of it where there's maybe um, almost obvious metaphorical uh, or anthropomorphic sort of language uh, that helps us distinguish some of what's historical versus uh, versus what is kind of in the mythical category, and then uh, and then also we have the New Testament to help us understand the Old Testament, such as uh, the Apostle Paul's sort of lining up of what happened with Adam and and so on, that he seems to think Adam was a historical character. So these seem to be two of your grids for helping you understand Genesis 1 through 3. Is that correct? Yes. I portray your view accurately? Yes,
1: quite right. And in addition to that, there will be individual specific features of the narratives that can confirm this conclusion. For example, one that I think is very compelling is that when... Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, God posts cherubim Mm -hmm. at the entrance to the garden to keep them from coming back in, and a flaming, flashing sword that will keep them away. Now, I think this is clearly mythical. Why? Because cherubim don't exist. Cherubim are composite, imaginary creatures having... A lion's body, wings of a bird, and a human head or or, or torso. And the Old Testament is very strict about making no images of things in heaven that could be used in Israel. Uh, And so the reason that cherubim are found in the Holy of Holies and in the temple is because they weren't regarded as real. They were imaginary beings, and therefore it didn't violate the commandment of make, of, about making images because they weren't images of actual existent realities. And so that would be, I think, another good uh, tip-off that we're dealing here with something that is not meant to be taken literally.
0: Let's get out on that cherubim question real quick. Is that a Again, uh, wh- where would you pull that kind of thinking from? Where, where, I've never heard that before.
1: Well, if you look, for example, at Nahum Sarna's commentary on uh, Genesis, he is a, a prominent Jewish commentator, and he has a very nice discussion of the cherubim, uh, how they are very um, prevalent in ancient Near Eastern art. Um, I was just at the British Museum last year Uh, And looking at the Mesopotamian exhibits, and you can see the the cherubim and these composite sorts of creatures from these ancient Mesopotamian temples, and they are then uh, prominent in the Old Testament as well, and as Sarna says, uh, if these things were real, then they would be a violation of the prohibition in the law against making images of anything in heaven or on earth. Um, so that will be um, a, a good source if you wanted to look at this in any greater detail.
0: Mm, okay, interesting.
2: Good. Okay, so we started. We've started to touch a little bit on Adam and Eve. I know that you've been uh, really studying, especially for two years, historical Adam and Eve, yes. and uh, and so. Uh, I think what's interesting uh, for our discussion is just—and this is what you've been studying—is, well, scientists are saying one thing here, and the Bible seems to be saying another thing. Adam and Eve, real historical persons. On the other hand, science is telling us that man originated, you know, 130 to maybe 200,000 years ago. There wasn't really an Adam and Eve. They kind of were separated by a large geographical distance, started in Africa, not Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. If I got all my facts right, you can correct me on that. But but basically, science would, would say, no, the biblical account can't be true. So what has your research been telling you over the last two years?
1: What my research is telling me is that we should not write Neanderthals out of the human race. There has been a major shift in scientific opinion among paleoanthropologists about the cognitive capacities and humanity of Neanderthal man. He is not some sort of brutish, primitive ape man. Rather he had a brain capacity comparable to Homo sapiens, even larger than Homo sapiens, and he exhibited modern behaviors comparable to those exhibited by Homo sapiens. Just a couple weeks ago they found a piece of string in France in a cave that is associated with Neanderthal remains, which is made out of the fibers of the inner lining of bark from a gymnosperm tree. The fibers were twisted in a clockwise direction, then three of the strands were twisted in a counterclockwise direction to make this piece of string. The excavators of this dig said that this exhibits the kind of complexity that is required for mathematical thinking and language ability. So I think it is utterly prejudicial to say that Neanderthals were not human beings. Now, if that's right, that means that Adam and Eve need to be the ancestors, not only of Homo sapiens, but also of Neanderthals, and that's going to put them back somewhere around 750,000 to 500,000 years ago. Um, And so I think putting uh, Adam and Eve that far back is perfectly consonant with scientific evidence, in particular with the much ballyhooed evidence of population genetics. Population genetics is entirely consistent with the origin of the entire human race who has ever lived on the face of this planet from a founding pair who lived sometime prior to 500,000 years ago.
2: Okay, wow. So uh, so would modern science place Neanderthals, maybe the beginning of them, somewhere around Mesopotamia?
1: And uh, It's an yeah, open question, Michael. This is also very interesting. Um, if you put the origin of humanity back to the last common ancestor of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, the name of this common ancestor is Heidelberg man, or Homo heidelbergensis. And Homo heidelbergensis was a truly cosmopolitan species in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, so that he could have originated Anywhere, it would be quite huh. consistent to say that Homo Heidelbergensis or Heidelberg Man uh, lived in the Middle East, and that he then migrated to Europe and down south into Africa, where the southern population became Homo Sapiens, and the northern population became Neanderthals.
0: So I'm interested in in the the kind of how this affects the Amago Day. I'm curious ah. what your thoughts are. Have have we <gasps> In a sense, evolved out of an ectoplasmic whatever into something that's, uh, you know, monkey into Homo sapien into, or is uh, Neanderthals, all, all humanoid kind of beings uh, created independently of creation? Uh, how, how does this affect the imago day, the I, way that we're, just, we're looking at this?
1: I just finished the chapter in my book on the historical, Adam I'm dealing with this question. And I think. That my identification of Adam as belonging to Homo Heidelbergensis implies that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens alike are created in the image of God, and are therefore people for whom Christ died. So I believe that we may well see Neanderthals in heaven among the risen saints when we go there. Exactly. Uh, and when you look at the morphological or facial features of Heidelberg Man and Neanderthal, well, as one paleoanthropologist has said, if you were to dress them up in a three-piece suit uh, and have him walk into a New York subway, he would not have aroused any just, sort of special interest. And, and I don't think that's a commentary just on the indifference of New Yorkers.
2: Uh, that make a but, good Geico commercial.
1: <laughs> that, that, that these folks are within what we would say are are anatomically similar human beings.
2: Okay, so Imago Dei, the, the image of God then, in your mind, doesn't necessarily have so much to do with what shape was your skull right. and more to do with our vocation before God, which no, is to rule the earth.
1: No, I, thank you okay. for raising that, Michael. I reject the vocational interpretation of the image of God. I think this is almost demonstrably wrong, and I discuss Richard Middleton's work in my uh, book. I would argue that the image of God has to do with some sort of substantial or ontological resemblance of human beings to God. Obviously not a physical resemblance, as you say, but rather a resemblance to God in that, like God, we are Are persons, that is to say we are rational, self-conscious, free individuals who are able to make morally significant choices. And even the vocational interpretation presupposes such an ontological resemblance, because in order to carry out the vocation of being God's representatives and royal Um, underlings on this planet, you would have to have the properties of personhood and personal agency.
2: Right. Okay, so would you say that you would exclude the vocational definition of the image of God, or more just you wouldn't limit it to that?
1: What I would say is that it is an implication of the image of God, that God has created human beings to resemble him, and that they are finite persons, resembling God and therefore capable of carrying out the divine vocation that God gave to man when he created, uh, them on this planet.
0: Okay. What about those who say that, um, you know, in, in the wedding of Canaan, right, Jesus shows up, and he doesn't turn water into grape juice. He turns it into wine, right? Or Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Uh, God doesn't create them as uh, uh, a fetus, right? They don't, he doesn't create them oh. as, a, as a toddler. He, in fact, yeah. he creates them as a, as a fully developed man. What if the earth, and I'm just using um, argumentations, the, the conscious objector who's out there, what if this new earth creation was created old, Uh, And science is pointing us to an old earth because God created Mm -hmm. it mature in the same way he created mature wine and not grape juice.
1: Yeah. I would agree with many young earth creationists that we ought to resist theories that appeal to apparent age because it's deceptive of God and it makes rational exploration of the cosmos impossible. I mean, that sort of appeal is consistent with saying that the world was created five minutes ago with built-in appearances of age, uh, <laughs> and there would be no way to assess such a theory. So even even young earthers, I think, are quite uh, resistant to the idea that we ought to think of uh, creation in terms of apparent age. Gotcha.
2: Okay, okay I want to I want to come back to the image of God discussion for a moment. Uh, what would you say if somebody was uh, was to respond to you, Dr. Craig, <laughs> by saying, well, when we talk about consciousness and rational thought and uh, I, I can't remember exactly all the list of, of things. Will. Free will. Okay, what if somebody said, well, hey, Satan had a free will. He rebelled against oh. God, and, um, you know, and he has a, a lot of characteristics of personhood okay yeah. so revelation 12 he has fury he yeah. can take people captive to do his will etc so uh, so somebody might say well so it seems like the real difference is our vocation we're to rule the earth like god rules the earth so oh no no no
1: I, I, well i would say that there are persons who are not human persons
2: mm-hmm.
1: there are angels they mm-hmm. are persons but they're not human persons indeed In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image, and he may well be speaking there to the angelic court. Um, So Satan is certainly a person, but he's not a human person. In order to be a human person, you have to have an anatomically human body, one Mm. that is similar in its DNA to our body. So if there are, for example, extraterrestrials, like Klingons, uh, they are persons, but they're not human persons.
0: Gotcha, and then that would explain uh, Christ died for human persons, not just persons in general. Yeah, uh, and this, this, in yes. talking about the Imago day, this kind of leads me into uh, a second part of our discussion in talking about Genesis. There's a uh, a very controversial text where God says, "Let us make man in our own image," uh, and, and I believe I've heard you talk about this as a Trinitarian. Uh, uh, conversation within your debates, do you think it's plausible that this may be a divine council scene, or are you more inclined to think that this is uh, a a trinity present?
1: I think that there are a number of options. Uh, I I think it's probably implausible to read the later doctrine of the trinity back into this text. As I said earlier when you spoke about the book of Revelation, we shouldn't impose later documents or doctrines on these texts. I think a plausible interpretation could be that it's a sort of self-exhortation on God's part, let us do this, um, or perhaps a plural of majesty. But I think it's also plausible that he is speaking to the angelic court. Um, So that's an open issue that is probably irresolvable with any sort of confidence. We need to just simply list the alternatives, um, and and leave it, I think, a fairly open question.
0: But but you see it as plausible because the the angelic beings, like you said, were, were divine persons, and God yes. is a divine person. They all seem to have free yes. will, so it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be anti uh, anti the Christian worldview to kind of hold to that
1: position. Oh, hardly. I mean, in Genesis six, uh, in the primeval history, you've got these sons of God who right. come down to earth and copulate with human females. So you've got these figures already in the primeval history as well as elsewhere in, in the Old Testament.
2: Okay. So how does the Genesis 1 idea of divine counsel, does it in any way feed into Genesis 3 and the story of, of Satan, the serpent, and uh, I know he's not called mm-hmm. Satan directly in right. Genesis 3, but the serpent, how do, how, does this re- how do these relate to one another, if they relate to one another?
1: the figure of the serpent is very enigmatic because he's clearly evil, and yet he just comes out of nowhere. There's no attempt made to explain his origin uh, or to identify him as a demonic being incarnate as a snake. Quite the contrary, in the story he's just presented as the craftiest of the animals of the field that the Lord God had made. So I take this to be part of the mythological coloring of the story. It's a story about a snake who is evil and tempts Adam and Eve to fall, but it shouldn't be taken literally. I think that the snake could certainly be a symbol of evil, um, but I don't think we need to think of him as being some, as, as Satan or a, a demon incarnate in a snake-like form.
2: Okay, so I know you've done work on the atonement, so I wonder if this plays in the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, mm. that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, and then playing forward into Revelation, where uh, where Satan is called that ancient serpent. And, right. and so it, one might push back and say, well, it seems that the New Testament authors viewed uh, the serpent as Satan in some way. Uh, how would you respond to
1: that? I would say that it might well be the case that John in the Apocalypse does interpret it that way. That 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 would be fine. Uh, that he would uh, give that sort of interpretation. But I'm talking about what it originally meant uh, mm-hmm. to its audience and its author. Um, now there was another part to your question that I I okay. forgot.
0: It wasn't only it was only John used the other references of, of Paul, I believe.
2: Yeah, I, I think I mean I just I, uh, I don't remember.
0: <laughs> so, I, I don't either. It happens.
1: Um, oh, I know about the enmity between the seed oh, of, of the woman. That's right. Yes, That's yes. right. Yeah, yeah. Genesis three fifteen. Is this meant to describe just the fact that snake that, that that human beings have a kind of deep instinctual loathing and dread of snakes? Is that all that this is meant to say, or is it meant to embody some deeper truth? Well, there again, I think it's difficult to answer that question. I'm open to the alternatives and open to uh, hearing the arguments on both sides, but I don't have a firm opinion on that. It, it, it would seem that um, in saying that he will crush your head, it, it is saying something more than just that human beings are afraid of snakes. That would seem to trivialize the the prophecy.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it, uh, many call it the the first mention of the gospel, and I don't want to mm-hmm. butcher the Latin proto-whatever, but um, it, it, it seems as if the seed of the woman, like, as, again, I'm just quoting things that I've heard. Uh, the seed of the woman, women don't have seed. So this is speaking potentially of a virgin birth. This is speaking of
1: Christ. Oh, I, yeah, uh, again, I think that, that's prophetic. too much. That, that's reading too much for you. way too much into it. Just the seed of the woman is just her descendants, you know, okay. her her descendants. But uh, and, uh, But then finally, using the singular, not the plural, but he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This seems to have a a, a deeper significance than just saying humans and snakes aren't going to get along. Right.
0: When you say deeper, do you mean Christological or do you mean just more significant than than maybe a plain reading?
1: More significant than just that trivial reading that I, I gave, but enigmatic, unclear, perhaps only to be discerned in retrospect. Um, as you look back on it through the lens of Christ,
2: okay, is that a fair hermeneutic in your mind to say, okay, well, the New Testament mm-hmm. helps us understand, or is that not really a fair hermeneutic because we're uh, we are not allowing the original intention of the author and the and the way it would have been understood in the Hebrew culture at the time? Uh, is it a fair hermeneutic? It's
1: not a fair hermeneutic. If By that you mean this is what it originally meant. But it's a fair hermeneutic in the sense that one can see deeper significance in this than what it originally meant. Think of the prophecy of Isaiah, that a young maiden will conceive and bear a son. Uh, And Matthew takes that to be Um, applicable to the virgin birth of Jesus, which goes way beyond what Isaiah himself probably meant Mm -hmm. and had in mind. But this is typical of Jewish exegesis, is to see these deeper layers of meaning, these uh, deep theological truths um, that weren't seen necessarily by those who originally wrote them and, and read them.
0: Okay, so the the idea that the Old Testament is has the new concealed and the New Testament has the old revealed? Uh, would you would you say that it's, again, I, I'm just pressing that question a little bit further, uh, that it's acceptable to look at the Old Testament as if it has concealed truth. That the, like the, like the author yeah. Daniel, like he, there's a prophetic word given to Daniel and Dan, oh. what meaneth this Lord? And he's like, you're really not supposed to know right now. It's for later. Yeah. Uh, is it not possible that the authors un, unbeknownst to themselves that uh, they're, they were being carried along by the spirit in a way? That, that had some kind of mystery attached to it that they well, weren't aware of that was going to be revealed in the New Testament?
1: The New Testament says as much with respect to the prophets. I would just be very, very cautious about applying it here to these primeval narratives. And I would prefer to put it that when viewed through the lens of Christ, you can add meaning and significance to these uh, narratives that they didn't have for their original audience. That would be the way I would prefer to put it. Excellent.
2: Now, now, Dr. Craig, it seems that you would allow for some measure of evolution, uh, given that you've said uh, that I've heard you give three kind of stages of human development, uh, if you want to call it human development, uh, of the development of those made in the image of God. I can't remember what the first one was, but then it was Neanderthal and then Homo sapien. Right. So it seems that you would allow for some degree of evolution. But then the fact that you believe in a historical Adam and Eve would suggest to me that you believe the Genesis account, that they, mm-hmm. uh, that they were directly created from go- by God, not sort of evolving from apes mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, am I representing your view accurately?
1: Yes. Uh, I think that it's perfectly possible scientifically that Adam and Eve were de novo creations out of inanimate Im- materials rather than out of pre-existing hominins. But given that we're dealing here with a mytho history, I'm not at all confident that that's true. In fact, quite the opposite. I I think that the creation of Eve out of Adam's rib is almost undeniably figurative language, uh, rather than describing an actual surgery that took place with this rib floating in the air and then being formed into a woman. And even God's creating Adam out of dirt and then blowing into his nose, again, seems to be very, very anthropomorphic and figurative. So I think that the narratives of Genesis 1, given their genre, leave it open as to how God created Adam and Eve, and that makes it a scientific question. And when I look at the question scientifically, I think that the similarities that human beings exhibit genetically to chimpanzees, particularly broken genes that we and chimpanzees both seem to have inherited from a last common ancestors that, uh, that has no function anymore, suggests that we do share an evolutionary origin with human beings, and that God used a pre-existing hominin who was non-human and merely animal, not in the image of God, as the stuff, as it were, out of which then he created the first human beings. And this probably involved some sort of regulatory genetic mutation induced by God in these hominins and the creation and infusion of a rational soul into them to make them truly human so there would be both biological and spiritual renovations required in order to have a genuine human being
0: and and i want to like uh so so that sounds like theistic evolution is that Mm -hmm. is that a position that you're comfortable with i am comfortable comfortable with it
1: biblically uh, i i think that biblically you can't rule it out the way in which it might differ from theistic evolution is the degree to which I want to appeal to miracles. Theistic evolution often tries to provide a purely naturalistic account of how God brought about biological complexity, whereas what I'm suggesting is miraculous intervention on God's part to bring about a biological and spiritual renovation of this hominid form that would never have occurred naturalistically if left to its own devices.
0: And and to your point earlier when you said it's improbable that you see that the the removal of Adam's rib forms Eve. Uh, this is probably just language. You're not saying that God couldn't do that. I mean, you're uh, saying that God can use uh, some kind of, uh, I apologize, I'm not a scientist here, some early monkey ancestor and breathed life into this thing <laughs> and allows to, allowed it to evolve. I mean, you, that you believe. Scientific. I, thank you. I appreciate that. But, but I mean, you, you believe that... Uh, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. So God sure. can do whatever he wants. He spit Absolutely. in some guy's eye and made him see. But you just see the language as suggesting uh, that, that this is probably a little bit more uh, mythological that, than it is exactly uh, right. impossible for God.
1: Okay. Exactly right, Josh. And I hope that our listeners who are young earth creations today don't take the easy way out of accusing me of anti-supernaturalism and being right, right, right. against miracles because that would be a gross... misrepresentation Misrepresentation. of my position. Of course God can do these things. My claim is that when you do a sensitive genre analysis of Genesis 1 to 11, it suggests that we're not dealing here with a straightforward historical narrative, but with a mytho-history.
2: Okay. Now, how would you respond to somebody who says, well, hey, we can all agree Genesis 12 to 50, all conservative Christians, okay, can agree <laughs> oh. Genesis 12 to 50 is not mythological, and some might even say Genesis uh, 4 to 50. Why are we going to put Genesis 1 to 3 in a special category? Does it feel like a, a special oh. pleading okay. to try to make this section? So we're back on the hermeneutical question yeah, again. Uh, this is yeah, the yeah.
1: hermeneutical question, and one of the things that I discovered very early on as I began this study, Michael, is that Genesis 2 and 3 about Adam and Eve must not be read in isolation. They are mm-hmm. part of the primeval narrative that extends from chapter 1 to, or through chapter 11, up to the call of Abraham. And mm-hmm. it is this primeval history that is so similar in its themes and characteristics to ancient Near Eastern myths uh, involving these great themes of creation, the origin of humanity and the flood. So I would be absolutely insistent that we cannot read these chapters about Adam and Eve in isolation, but we will only understand them accurately in the context of the primeval history.
2: Okay. so. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then maybe we'll take a, a moment to kind of summarize.
0: Before you do that, run the ad as you ask the question. I, I forgot to do it earlier. Okay.
2: Yeah. We have an ad to run. I'll ask one more question, and then we'll... Uh, so I'll ask a question, then we'll run the ad, and yeah. then we'll take some kind of final summaries of of what we've been saying. So the the question I, I want to uh, ask Dr. Craig uh, has more to do with how young Earth creationists, old Earth creationists, theistic evolution, etc., how we should interact with one another. Um, just because I can see even in the comments section, there's some that disagree with you, some that agree with you. And so how, how can we come into line as Christians? And so I just want to speak more on the practical side.
0: Answer that right after we get a word from our sponsor. So just hold the thought there and we'll, uh, we'll wrap that up. This one thing I know Hey guys, the song you are listening to right now is from Stonebridge Worship, who's supporting us here at Remnant Radio, and we want to really encourage you to check out their new album. I've been listening to this album all week long. They sent me the, the whole album here on Dropbox, so I get some special privileges. But if you guys want to check out this song, Even When, by Stonebridge Worship, you should check out it on Spotify. Just type in Stonebridge Worship there in Spotify, and you can listen to this full song, or you can wait uh, and get the full album when it releases here in June. So thank you so much, Stonebridge, for helping sponsor this episode of Ruminant Radio. Okay, so Dr.
2: Craig, how should we relate to one another, young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, traditional interpretations?
1: I think we need to recognize that these are controversial and difficult questions, and therefore to be charitable and uh, tolerant of one another. There are good, faithful, Bible-believing Christians who hold to a diversity of views. And in our churches, I think we need to make room for all of these uh, different perspectives and should not be impugning the spirituality or the faithfulness of those who disagree with us. Amen. That's good. And Amen. I want to just add a note on this. For me, This has not been some frivolous academic exercise. This has been a personal struggle that has involved real anguish as I've lain awake at night thinking about these things, trying to come to some sort of understanding of these. Um, I remarked to my friend and colleague Joshua Swamidass the other day that for him it seemed to be fun and Really enjoyable to thrash out these alternatives, whereas for me this is agonizing. I really <laughs> agonize over these issues and these questions. So uh, I would just plead with those who disagree with me to understand that I am I am trying my best as a biblically faithful Christian to make sense of these very difficult uh, narratives.
0: Amen. That's great. That's awesome.
2: So, uh, Josh, as we think about final thoughts, what comes, uh, what comes to mind for you?
0: Man, uh, you know, I think, uh, just what he was saying, you know, as we wrap up, uh, one of the things that I do in evangelism when we're out on the streets is I always want to make beelines to the cross. Right. And one of the things that people are constantly using, uh, as a hurdle to get away from the Jesus conversation is I can't believe in the gospel because I believe in science. Right. Uh, and my, my instant, uh, objection is to get them away from that into the cross. So they'll say, hey, I believe in evolution. That's not possible. And even though I would certainly say that I'm undecided on this, I'll open up the book of Genesis and say, God spoke to the earth and told the earth to bring forth living creatures. And I was like, does that sound like evolution to you? And they go, yeah, it kind of does. And I was like, great, let's get to Jesus. And we'll, just, we'll just get we'll get away from that as quick as possible so that we can get to the gospel. And I think that when Christians realize that we don't have to have a very specific, narrow view of this so that we can get people to Jesus, I think that's a, it's a, a very Important tactic, uh, not a, a tactic. It's it's something that as Christians we need to keep the essential things, the essential things, and realize, uh, like like Dr. Craig said, when it comes to texts of Genesis uh, one through three that have a lot of of mystery and a lot of hard hermeneutical uh, perspectives and varying views throughout history and in the church at large today, uh, we need to be a little bit more gracious uh, with those texts. Absolutely, yeah,
2: totally in agreement with that. And Dr. Craig, we appreciate your your humility and. And to give us a, even you giving us a little bit of a glimpse of the way you struggled through this issue, um, I I think it's important for everybody to understand. And, and this is just kind of how we operate on this show is, uh, on issues that are controversial like this, we, we do, we, we try to approach them with a humility. So young earthers, old earthers, all of our viewers, uh, let's love Jesus together. Amen. That's yeah. what this is all about. And I and I think the bottom line for me and I think for all, for all of us is uh, with regard to the scriptures is that the scripture regardless of how we interpret some of the controversial texts At the end of the day, is it my authority for living? When I read the scripture, am I reading what God is saying to me, or am I just reading what people thought about God? I'm reading what God is saying to me through the scripture, regardless of how I categorize this genre or whatever. And so I'm hearing... Dr. Craig, that, that that's your bottom line, even though you've, yes. you've come to some carefully formulated thoughts on the book of Genesis, you see it as just as authoritative authoritative as, say, a young Earther, and so oh, I, I, I appreciate your humility, and I, and I think we're all in agreement on this bottom line. I think that helps us Good. Uh, walk in unity.
1: I would like to just say one last thing, and that is Please. that when Josh points people to Jesus, he can do so in confidence that in the Gospels we are dealing with historical biographies of the man Jesus of Nazareth. People fear, oh, this is a slippery slope. If you say this about the primeval history, what about the Gospels and the life of Jesus? Isn't that mythological? And I feel so good to know that that mythological hermeneutic for the Gospels was tried in the late 19th century and utterly, utterly failed. During the 20th century it was discovered among New Testament scholars that the proper interpretive framework for Jesus of Nazareth is not pagan mythology, but rather first-century Palestinian Judaism, and read against that background, the Gospels emerge as very credible historical documents. So, our faith is grounded in Jesus and his resurrection, and that is Amen. not shaken by anything that I've said today about the genre of Genesis 1 to 11.
0: For more, go
1: to ReasonableFaith.org.